Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifstecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by our damned former co-host who can never return, and yet has, Ollie Brady. Ollie, welcome. Oh, it's great to be back, Sarah, as always. Sarah, just... um. Why did you choose to do this podcast? I, I listened to the first episode there recently. I was like, what a stupid question to ask. But why did you choose to do this podcast, Sarah? I chose to do this podcast because I'm a very grumpy medieval historian who yells at movie screens. And yep. in fact, currently am coming to you from, at the time of recording, uh, Barcelona, where I've been actually looking at medieval documents again for the first time in several years. Yay! Can you not look at medieval documents in the state? Oh no, sorry, I'm my mistake. Sorry. I mean, there are, there are we have some rare book libraries. Um, yeah, mm. in the United States, there are places where one could look at medieval documents, but there's a lot more feels, over here. Feels like the British Museum in terms of stolen antiquity, if you ask me. Hey, y'all um, soldier shit. <laughs> uh, and what what do people usually get wrong about the uh, the Middle Ages, Sarah? Well, they often assume that the Middle Ages is a time where everything was extremely gray, color hadn't been invented yet, and everybody was very violent. So that's uh, those are some common tropes. And I would say there's not necessarily a reason to suspect that it was, you know, at least more violent than it often seems like society is today. Cough, look at America, cough. That is true. America <laughs> is very violent. What I noticed... Um, recently is I, have you seen the new jurassic park movies uh no because i saw the first of the new one and i hated it so much that i have refused to see any subsequently these were two two good choices you made by not watching them but the last one has uh, a dinosaur with like wings in it and um like feathers and stuff which as you know a lot of people uh are are seeing as like that's what most of uh, dinosaur would have actually looked like because that's where our birds evolved from etc and it's likelihood that they had feathers but people don't want to admit that like they want to sit and say that lizards are what they were like giant lizards right. going around those were scary and the medieval equivalent of that would be the people who are now claiming that prima nocta wasn't a thing you when we all know for a fact that it actually was a thing and we've already agreed in this here there's no need to, to go into this i'm anymore. pretty sure we've agreed in fact that it's not a thing actually uh, relatedly another common trope is the idea that of course women were just horrifically oppressed and had no rights whatsoever whereas actually that describes america in 2022 as uh, of june where i in fact by the time i return to america will have significantly fewer rights than i did when I left. Cool, right? As a resident of the state of Tennessee. Sarah, every time we go to her court, she puts in stuff that I know I'm going to have to cut out. And then she don't says, cut don't out. cut it out. I'm don't not going to cut that out. I care more about your job and your potential. I should not, uh, I, I have, I should not be uh, let go from my job on the basis of that. I will stand by my rights that I don't really have as an American. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I have the right to free speech at the moment. Big section there that you did 
didn't hear. So even if you heard that stuff about rights and stuff, there was tons more I got out. When um, we descend into fascism, they'll use this podcast against me. But, you know, I'm, I'm already, I'm not going to make it through sorry, the first purge. Descend. It's fine. I feel like fascism might be several steps up from where you guys are at the minute <laughs> in some ways. Um, but more importantly, what movie are we watching, Sarah? Or did we watch, Sarah? Today, we watched Solomon Kane, the 2009 film starring James Purefoy. And, I just want to yeah. jump in to say, I love James Purefoy. <laughs> and he's a, he's a bad actor. He's not particularly good at a lot of things. And I just love the man. I just, I just think I, he's great. I like him. I think he's very charming. I saw a lot of him recently in the... Um, relatively new series discovery of witches he uh plays a prominent role in the second season of that i haven't seen that is it uh is it worth watching in some ways yes in some ways no i have very mixed feelings about it i think there are a lot of things that are borderline incomprehensible if you haven't read the books as a person who watched the first season then read the books and then watched the second season yeah and also my mom had read the books, so she like told me things and I was like that you would never get that watching the show if somebody had if like somebody who had read the books had not explained that to you. Day, are you familiar with the Malleus Maleficarum? I am, yes. So and for any listeners who are not, literally means the hammer of witches and it's a book that is essentially a kind of guideline for how to find and hunt witches, basically. Do they and... float like a duck? <laughs> there's some there's some fun shit in there. Um, so this, uh, you know, and I think there are certainly people who might be interested in this series who are familiar with the Malleus Maleficarum, but I don't think everybody knows what the Malleus Maleficarum is. So when somebody offhandedly refers to the Malleus Maleficarum without explaining it, I think that's problematic. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, so so I think there are some issues like that, but it's kind of fun. And, you know, so there there's like witches and there's vampires. So James Purefoy is the vampire who is the father of the main vampire. And I will now watch this because I like him. I like him in Rome. Uh, yeah. He was in a movie we covered here on this podcast. He's uh, He is Edward Dith. Third in he is uh, Edward the Black still. Prince. He never actually becomes king, so he Edward the Third is his father. Oh right, so he's Edward the Third's son in a, in a night's tale. Yes, which is yes, cool. he is. Yeah. So yes, he is the titular Solomon Kane in this particular film, which also stars a aggressively wasted Max von Sydow, <laughs> a an excellent actor who was in conservatively i don't know six minutes of this film he's only a little bit and the bits he is in he's great um yeah good dad bad dad it's it's hard to tell (laughs) he definitely favors one of his children um but yeah he he doesn't have much to do he's like a prodigious talent What, what an actor like but it's just you know he's he doesn't have a lot Yeah, so He Is Wasted uh, also stars Rachel Hurd-Wood, who I don't think I've seen in anything else, as Meredith Crowthorne, a.k.a. the one reason this film technically passes the Ift Decker test. And by technically, you mean totally passes it. In fact, nails it, aces it. Um, Rachel Hurd-Wood is Wendy in the, I think it's 2003 Peter Pan movie. Okay. Um, And she was also, she's an Australian actress. And she was also in a movie that I don't know anybody else who's ever seen. It's called Tomorrow When the War Began. And it's an Australian 
uh, movie, like post-apocalyptic YA story. But I yeah. think she's great in that. Um, and, and I think I might have talked about it before because one of the characters um, from Wheel of Time, her the actress who plays Egwene in that was in another version, a TV version of the same story. Because Australians love those books and they don't seem to have, have crossed across. Uh, her father is played by Pete Postlethwaite, uh, also an excellent character actor. <laughs> Postlethwaite. How would you pronounce that? Uh, Postlethwaite. Postlethwaite? Is that how? Is that how the English say it? Or the yeah. Irish, sorry. Well, no, well, yeah, well, I'm Irish, but um, yeah, that's a, a Pete Postlethwaite. He's, he's an institution over here. Um, yeah. He's also in a Jurassic Park movie. He's in mm. The Lost World. That's right. That's right, um, which I have seen. Yeah, and he's in The Usual Suspect. Oh. He's a great, great, great actor. And the final person I was going to mention is Rory McCann is in this movie. Now, Rory McCann is the hound. He is also Michael and Hot Fuzz. I have therefore spent a lot of my life looking at Rory McCann. Not only did I not recognize him in this film, I even did not, in fact, at any point, like <laughs> afterwards, when I like found him in the list and it says he plays somebody named, what's his name, McNess. I have no idea who that is. Absolutely none. Uh, this goes back to your season of The Witch episode where both yourself and Megan, uh, I think Megan Thripp, was on your guest that episode um both of you were shocked to find out that uh he was downed in game of thrones you're like oh he's the hound in game of thrones <laughs> like when he went somebody like one of you obviously went through his um his filmography and some stage you're like yep that's where we can uh, it's hard it's hard for me not to recognize him. he's just, again another mainstay of <clears throat> british tv over here he would have been in tons of tv shows and, and little movies when i was a kid like or a kid like in my teens and 20s and um yeah so anytime i see him so it's always a good time Rory McCann, good great actor yeah no i i'm sure he was great i can't 100 percent say because i still do not know who he played sarah we get to go into the first bit i get to sing for the first time like that enumeratio which is we recap stuff yeah there was a time where no one stood against evil witchcraft and sorcery. And that time it was North Africa in 1600, apparently. So, okay, so we start with James Purefoy and some of his buddies who are showing up to this fortress. They are just killing everybody in sight. Uh, they, at some point, describe them as putrid heathens, as in the sentence, let not one of these putrid heathens live, is a sentence. Yeah, it's it's weird. Um, like, I'm going to say like a lot in this episode, because for people listening, anybody who's ever heard me on the podcast before, you know this is my kind of movie. So I tend to be a little bit more defensive of it than I really should be. But uh, yeah, this is kind of a bit defensible here at the beginning. It is the yeah. most othering of people that you were invading. And see, this this is one of those things as well where I, I was listening to a podcast recently, a podcast that myself and yourself both listened to, Sarah. And uh, one of the one of the hosts was giving it the old, mm, oh no, that's problematic that they showed that on screen or whatever. And in some cases, depiction is not endorsement is a really important thing. So Solomon Cain is meant to be a dick 
in this scene. Like he's the worst of the worst. He is yes, what but... Johnny Depp would be if Pirates of the Caribbean wasn't a comedy or an attempt at a comedy. Sorry, it's what Johnny Depp would be in real life. So, um, but my problem with that though is that yes, he's supposed to be a dick, but when he ultimately gets into the throne room, it's you see all the weird tree mirrors and shit. It's clear they are, in fact, evil sorcerers. So it's still associating Islam essentially with evil sorcery, even if he's like being a dick about it. No, no, no. I th- that's what I'm saying is I totally understand what you're saying. I just don't think that we're supposed to endorse it the entire way. I don't think that the people who made the movie made that connection that saying having him come in and go Islam oh they're a bunch of heathen savages with their witchcraft and then showing them actually having that I don't think they made the connection in their brains where they went well this is our way of sticking it to Islam no but I do think that unconscious bias and it's in particularly unconscious Islamophobia is a thing and I think that's on display whereas like when we eventually will go to England there's both evil witchcraft and there's like good Christians who are able to ward off evil by their Jesus and so like if we'd gotten even both sides in the Islamic context I think that would have helped but we didn't we only get the Islam and evil sorcery connection. Hmm, that's true. Maybe in a maybe in a in a sequel we could have some good maybe. Islam practitioners. Practitioners. Well, so one year later, Solomon returns to England. Wait, hold on a second. Oh, we jumped yes. ahead there, did we? Oh yeah, sorry. Uh, we we didn't actually go through what he ultimately ends up finding, which is that he gets into this throne room. There's uh, these like evil tree mirrors that eat all of his friends. They are creepy. Like, I know you've said it in the notes, but that's legitimately terrifying. Oh, yeah, they're real fucking creepy. And we talked about, or I mentioned Multiverse of Madness. The scene with Wanda in the mirrors when she attacks Doctor Strange's struggle is very reminiscent of this. Yeah, with like some real body horror shit. Yeah, and and it's... I think it's it's legitimately scary, especially that some of the guys noticed them and Solomon Kane's still driving them forward and like, yeah, forget about this. His, his voice is very particular. Forget about this, like, and mm-hmm. come with me and all this sort of stuff. And then they're all getting killed. But eventually he ends up in the throne room. He's about to do a bit of stealing as as he obviously is wont to right. do. Right. I will say also yeah. all of his men are dead and he kind of does not give a shit. Yeah, because he's Solomon Kane. Yeah. And Solomon Kane just does not care. Yeah. Um, and uh, as he does, uh, the Devil's Reaper pops up, you know, as happens. As you do. And uh, the room gets even more scary. And he says something along the lines of, your soul is forfeit. And he goes to reap the soul. But Solomon Cain drops to his knees and repents, as mm-hmm. all good Christians can do just before they die. Right. Which is repent their sins. And, uh, and he blocks the sword and then jumps out a window. But he gets told, like, you know, the voice comes after him and says... Your soul will be mine. You cannot escape us. Your soul is damned. Yeah. And then, and then we cut to one year later. Yeah. So now we're one year later. Solomon has returned to England. And has found sanctuary in a monastery. I am going to talk a lot about this later. Um, and the incongruity, historically speaking, of this monastery. <laughs> that will uh, be an for, extended for discussion. For listeners, again, Sarah was texting me as this was... She was watching this. We we watched this together in like 2017. Yeah. But um, 
she watched it again on Friday night. I watched it again yesterday and maybe a little bit this morning. And um, she uh, she was texting me as it goes along going, I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> yes. So he's at this monastery, right? And uh, he's like, oh, you know, it like really sucks. I'm clearly damned. Uh, basically, the only reason that I have not been literally dragged to hell is that this monastery is like a camo monastery, essentially. It's like camouflaging me from the devil with your prayers. And like, this is literally the only reason I have not been bodily dragged into hell. And then the abbot's just like, about that, actually, I need you to go. <laughs> I had a dream. <laughs> It is the most, like, dick move ever that he's just like, yeah, no, you gotta get the fuck out of here. And he's like, I gave you all of my money, and also I'm going to immediately die and go to hell as soon as I leave. And he's like, mm, I got this dream, though. Sorry, buddy. Uh, had a dream. You're gonna bring ruin to everybody, so gonna have to, gonna have to, gonna have to let you go, buddy. Um, Sorry. And then Solomon Cain obviously doesn't want to go, but... He has to leave. Yeah, so he gets kicked the fuck out of this monastery. Wanders about, sees some people in their plague doctor masks burning some corpses, as you do. Mm-hmm. And relatively quickly uh, gets um, snuck up on by some thieves. And, like, clearly he's lost his edge, right? Because, okay, on the one hand... You know, he's renounced violence. Fine, whatever. I understand why he's not killing them. I feel like there's not justification for the fact that he has lost his skills to such an extent that literally they come up behind him and he genuinely does not notice. Well, yeah, it's it's the incongruity of him getting waylaid by these guys. He doesn't want to do violence, and I get it. Like, that's fine. But he gets done over here by a bunch of amateurs. And... When he finally, and spoiler alert, he decides to go killing again. Um, when he finally makes that decision to go back to doing the killings, it's just instant into world's greatest badass. Right. So how does so, he just get ambushed by these three idiots? So he's, okay, is one of them Rory McCann? <laughs> no, Rory McCann is, uh, is his right-hand man when he is leading the other soldiers. That so was no Rory McCann? That's Rory McCann, yeah. What the fuck? Yeah, so he's got, because he's got short hair and he's got the beard. It took me a while to think about it. I was like, yeah, he's definitely not Malekith. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, but yeah, so you're right. It's just, it's it's such a weird thing to have happen that he's just suddenly, okay, yeah, that's it. That's what we're done. Like, Yeah, no, it's very weird. So they obviously attack him and take his stuff and seriously injure him. They uh, consider burning him as a sorcerer because he's got all these weird magical symbols, uh, both like he's got books with them, but also he's like literally like tattooed a bunch of shit on his body. We will, I think we don't quite in this scene see that, but we'll like see a lot of it later. Yeah. Um, but they decide, I guess, not to do that. They just like take his shit and beat him up. And he basically just takes it like yeah and i think this is also where we get our first flashback where we see the criminally underused max von sydow yes it does anytime he's physically in pain 
we tend to get a flashback to his his childhood. Yes. So here we just see that his father is going to make him like take holy orders and join the church and be taken off to an abbey, something again that will come up in my later discussion. And uh, that otherwise, basically, like, these are his two options is do this to become a landless vagrant. And he's like, oh, but like, my brother sucks. You shouldn't let him be the one who's in charge, despite the fact that like, young man, you know how primogeniture works. (laughs) But whatever. Does he? I'm not even certain he does. Yeah, well, he's not very bright. He's rescued by William Crowthorne and his very nice family, which, uh, so, you know, so as you said, I watched this movie uh, with you back in about 2017, but you know, it's 2022. That's been a while. So I remembered relatively little when I was watching this movie. And I did, however, write in my notes, this family seems very nice, which means clearly they're all about to die. (laughs) Yeah. Especially in a movie like this. can't offer sanctuary or help to somebody without knowing that you're you know you're not long for this world pete postlethwaite and his family yeah rest like rest in peace pete um we also he uh tells them it's like you know they're being like so nice and at some point one of them's like you know it must be really hard to take a life and he's like actually i thought it was great killing was awesome (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's the, the best thing about it. He's talking to them and Pete Postlethwaite is like very puritanical. So get, if you haven't seen the movie, just picture a Puritan. Yeah. That's that's who we're dealing with here. Who's with his kids and uh, the ki- the little boy is all like, oh, I like to do the fighting too. I'd, I'd fight if I had to and all this stuff. Solomon Cain's like, you don't want to be fighting, boy. <laughs> fighting is not You don't want to be like me. I'm a Solomon Cain, you know. And uh, I've got a black country accent, but I do it very deeply like this. Again, this is this is not far off what he actually sounds like. I don't know. Um, and he so he's doing it with less of the Irish, and I, I find it very hard to do black country accent. But he, Pete Postlethwaite is like, oh, you know, it must be very hard in those men. And it's just like, no, no. Once you've done it once, just just, just kind of have it forms a habit really and you just, just keep doing it. it becomes very easy and the rest of the family are kind of horrified the little kid is a little bit interested but because a little like, bit cool. scared by him. he uh, just wants to hear more about how he like fought the spanish and voyage yeah. with drake and the other side like who the fuck is this guy rachel hurtwood who i'm guessing is around about like so in real life she's about 23 or 24 making this movie but she's meant to be 15 i'm guessing 14 15 yeah maybe 16 yeah. yeah but pete Postlethwaite's definitely looking at solomon kane like hey you leave this little girl alone and i don't think like solomon kane doesn't give me any of those vibes at all like he- i was honestly relieved because i was worried just knowing how hollywood works that that was going yeah. to be the vibe and i was very pleasantly surprised that it actually never was and I think that's a whole... So this is based on a series of books by Robert E. Howard. Robert E. Howard, who is famous for writing the uh, Conan the Barbarian series. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samaria is where that's set. And when he wrote this set of books, this is this came much later. So the Conan books were written in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And this is written in the, the late 60s. And it was meant to be a counterpoint, like a more thoughtful hero. Right. Uh, than Conan, who is literally stabby killy uh 
having the old sexy times with as many people as he possibly can. Um, and I don't think Solomon ever has a love interest as far as for the rest of in in throughout the books. Now I've only read the first three, but I it just nothing about them ever struck me as yeah pre his uh you know saving um yes obviously like he's he's a pirate commander or whatever but right. afterwards he's there's no 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 real no real interest in the ladies as far as i can remember so yeah that and that I, that really yeah. works with this because he does really come across like a an older brother figure Right. And, you know, and I do think that there are ways in which as a character who's kind of a vague symbol of ultimate purity, there are ways in which using women to represent that is also kind of tropey and problematic. But I am at least relieved that it isn't a romance, which is absolutely as like where I thought it could be going. And so I'm I'm glad they didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing just about this family is that Rachel Hurtwood, uh, her little brother plays the little brother in the so in the family the the, the two oh that's kids her real brother those two kids that's her real brother oh that's cute yeah we I'm also not sure if he ever did any acting after that but hmm. yeah. we also get another flashback where so Solomon as he's running away he comes across his older brother Marcus being a rapist and he you know comes up and tries to stop Marcus from being a rapist or you know at least like distract him enough that the young woman is able to run away. And Marcus gets mad. He uh, cuts him across the face, so he has this scar now. And Solomon gets mad and accidentally pushes him off the cliff. I, watching this, am like, fucking good. Yeah. Fuck this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, let him, hashtag let him die. Fuck Marcus. <laughs> it's good to bring it back. I was waiting mm-hmm. for you to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so Solomon Cain and his brother are obviously little lordlings. In, mm-hmm. in the big house and his brother is a proper scumbag a proper yeah uh you know he's the kind of guy who thinks prima noct is a thing and is going to go and take it and in this particular exactly. instance he's just attacking accosting some local lady her name is sarah girl. <laughs> yeah and uh and solomon comes along and is like hey, stop that come on don't, don't be such a douche his brother is an asshole um and based on everything max von Sydow has told us is the better man um, and always was but uh, Solomon basically I was going to say pushes him off the cliff but he pushes him away from him and he falls and off he, yeah and he falls off the cliff it was clearly accidental and like he clear and he like reaches out and tries to grab his hand and doesn't make it so it's very clear I think in the film that Marcus is trash and that Solomon as a child at least was a perfectly normal nice whatever 14 year old boy or something which is good yeah so he's having a nice time with this family where simultaneously, like, he's just, like, having a good time. Meredith makes him clothes. Every now and then he'll say shit like, there was a time when I would have ripped these people still bleeding hearts from their chest. There's a There was a time when I would have ripped their still bleeding hearts from their chest and feasted on them before they died. That's the, that's the level that Solomon Cain was at. And also Badass. just, like, a normal thing to say to a... Very nice, kind of staid, respectable family, including like two, like two children under eighteen. Yeah, and he just says it straight out while while having dinner as well. Like, yeah, on. yeah. So they then come across this ravaged village, where it turns out that there has been a witch burning, but the witch burning didn't take. 
because, of course, she was really a witch. So instead, she, when being burned, killed everybody in the village. And this is another, actually, problem that I have, is that the... So, you know, I will say props where props are due in putting the persecution of witches en masse in the early 17th century where it belongs. Um, Many people incorrectly link it to the Middle Ages when they shouldn't. Uh, This is, in fact, the height of witch persecution is Mm -hmm. right here, right now, in 1601, essentially. This is a good time for it. But the reason people link it to you know later in time is you know when it takes place in america obviously that's the main most important one sarah well but that's actually more i mean so that's actually i would say the salem witch trials are actually the kind of later end but the film actually is like correct that this like the 16th and 17th centuries are times associated with witch persecution whereas like the 14th century really isn't no the 14th century was when like people did not especially care about witchcraft So yeah, of course, because why would they? Just wasn't just wasn't on their radar as like a big problem, especially like so. You know, props or props are due, but I find it really problematic that this film essentially takes what was basically a way to kind of just murder a bunch of women, especially women who maybe were somewhat more marginal figures, and then basically says, "Yeah, no, those bitches are witches, and they deserved it. Fuck them." <laughs> Is the implication that this film is making? Again, I'm not certain if that was the actual intention behind what they're doing. In this particular instance, it was a witch. But I think that it's problematic, is what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's intentional. I think somebody should have thought through the fact that it's kind of fucked up to say, actually, the witch persecutions were justified because at least some of them were real witches. Are you a witch? You have to tell me. It's like being a cop. I'm pretty sure that's not true. And <laughs> I wish. That's absolutely not true. <laughs> also, I wish. That'd be great. I think it would be awesome. I would yeah. love to have some sort of magic powers. I'd love I'd be to like be a, a witch. real Harry Potter situation, except I'd shank him in the back and steal the other one. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, so what happens... Uh, I was going to say what happens afterwards before we get to the killing of the family spoiler alert the family get killed yeah Uh, what happens with Meredith so they rescue from the village the sole survivor is this little girl and they bring the little girl and they say to the little girl let's all pray together and she goes I'm tired I don't want to pray and Solomon Cain is like hmm (laughs) she's from the valley (laughs) yes (laughs) I don't want to pray (laughs) that's what he finds weird it's the accent um so he says, you know, William, that's a father, like, maybe you should let her, you know, wear her gear across tonight for protection. And while, like, he's pulling that, the little girl, like, grabs Merida's hand and goes, you're the one we really want, and marks her with this creepy gray mark, since, of course, she is, in fact, the witch. Surprise! What? And how did Solomon Cain know? Because she didn't want to pray. <laughs> that's how you know I am really a witch. I never want to pray. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> And so she, as one does, um, explodes into birds and disappears. <laughs> as you do. That is such a cool witch power, though. Oh, like, yeah. More witches should just be like, all right, now I'm birds. Yeah, no, sounds great. It's, I mean, it's very Dracula, actually. <laughs> just It just explodes into birds. It's cool. So 
she takes off, and uh, meanwhile, we also see what is happening with the forces of evil. So that we've got this gentleman named Malachi, who we do not actually see, but we see Malachi's right-hand man, who is a creepy masked gentleman, who has the power, uh, when he comes across new recruits, to grab them on the head and turn them into orcs. Yeah, that is a weird thing. It's... Like, people are worried about witchcraft from these women. As you said, they're getting burned at the stake, these women. And yet, Malachi is quite clearly some sort of warlock figure, mind-controlling people. And I get it that he's feared and he's attacking villages and stuff, but how did he manage to get to that position without people trying to burn him at the stake? Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, I guess that he just probably stabbed them all. I don't know. Well, I, there is a little bit of backstory that he was a healer and he made a, a deal with the devil right. and stuff. But like, but we'll get to that when it right. comes up. Yeah. So yeah. So he's got his right hand man who just, as I said, basically turns people into works um, in some design choices that are clearly stolen from other better <laughs> films. Absolutely stolen from other movies. Um, they couldn't. They couldn't be more. Here we we took the leftover makeup from Lord of the Rings. Thank yeah. You. So journeying through the woods, um, the uh, the youngest of the kids, Samuel, you know, this kid is like, Solomon, I think maybe I heard something. And it's like, yeah, it's an entire army, like, kidnapping a bunch of people screaming, like, wow, you're you're not special, kid, but you managed to somehow hear this. Solomon's like, you hide behind that tree. I need to go down and not kill anybody. Yeah. So, of course, unsurprisingly, while Solomon is sort of, like, looking at the army and not doing anything, they capture the whole family and they are trying to get Solomon to start killing again, presumably because they they know that if he returns to killing and breaks his vow to not kill, he will be taken by the devil or whatever, right? It's it's crazy that they can recognize that in him as well, like because they're they're taunting him with the devil hey, knows his own. Why don't yeah? Why don't you do some killing here, Solomon? He's like, no, I can't do it. I'm not going to do it, and then. <laughs> He just watches this family get slaughtered. Well, including like the kid in particular, like because because yeah. uh, so so it's that like they they have the kid like at knife point, and he's like, no, don't hurt the kid, and he's like, all right, kill me, kill me if you don't want to fucking hurt the kid, like me to hurt the kid, and he doesn't, and they slit the kid's throat directly in front of him. At that yeah, point, and he it, it, it's is a brutal kill, people. No, like, it's really not, brutal. Uh, it's, I mean, in, in one way. It might be a little bit too much, but also in another way, like, at least I appreciate that they do that. Like, they don't shy away from how nasty this is. Right. Like, that Solomon is just looking at this kid's face as he gets his throat cut. Yeah, no, it's an intense scene. And this, a little too, little too late, but this is what finally gets him to, you know, start killing again. And he says, if I kill you, I am bound for hell. It is a price I shall gladly pay. And at this... It's a price I shall gladly pay. However, his killing everybody ultimately does not help because there are too many everybody's. So they kill they kill um, the other son, the older son, and they kill Pete Postlethwaite, rest in peace. Um, his wife seems to still be alive and he just like will ultimately like leave her there hanging around alone in a field of corpses, which is a move. And uh, they kidnap Meredith. Because in fact she has been she has been marked and that's why they are particularly like taking her. Yeah, just to, just to chime in on on the action scenes in this, um, they're really good. 
it's, yeah. it's really well done like yeah. visceral the movement makes sense that like at, at, there's no point where Solomon Kane is doing like weird twirls of a sword or anything like this like every movement he makes is a movement to try and kill another person or a movement that like I'm not a, a HEMA expert like I'm not a swordsman or anything like this I mean I do own several swords but I'm not going out practicing with them in fields anymore um, anymore but, back, but like he he's it's not like flashy for the sake of flash so yeah. everything is done with with the intention to hurt another person and it looks like that in the, the way it's cut and the way it's shot there's a few too many I mean it was 2007 2008 like there's a few too many quick cuts which mm-hmm. I don't like like let me see the action scenes please these guys have actually done a lot of training and yeah. James Purify has done a lot of training to be able to do that sort of stuff he, he did several movies in this this genre um but yeah it's it it's one of the better like I would watch the action scenes in this over the action scenes in Kingdom of Heaven for example oh yeah a hundred times out of a hundred. Yeah, no, they're they're very clear in terms of what's going on, except for you know the fact that the film is somewhat aggressively gray. But other than that, they're quite you know quite clearly done. You know, occasionally there's a little bit of a like probably vaguely unnecessary like dramatic flourish of a cape, but overall they're like very kind of clean, well done scenes. Yeah. Um. So Solomon decides that he's going to go find Meredith. <clears throat> and in fact, he is told by William, because I'm going to talk about the theological implications of this film in a bit. Um, William tells him like, okay, I, I apparently have the authority to do this. I'm going to say to you that if you rescue Meredith, then you will no longer be damned. I fixed it. Yeah. You go and find her, saving her, a girl of pure heart and, I mean, heavily implied still a virgin will be well worth it because saving somebody pure will help to purify your own soul effectively. Yeah. So he goes off to rescue her again, leaving mom who seems to be just fine in a field of corpses alone. Yeah. She's, she seems, she's just chilling there. Yeah. Um, like, cause obviously she believes Solomon Cain's going to bring him back or bring her back. Uh, so he's traveling along and we get, so again, I was saying to you before that they're based on Robert E. Howard books. And I love Robert E. Howard books. Um, here's a scene of a thing that happened. And here's another. Because the kind of vignettes. Of were, yeah, little vignettes. And a lot of them were written as short stories that were printed in, um, you know, sci-fi fantasy newsletters yeah. and papers and stuff like this. So the next one, the next scene we have is very much that where yeah. he comes across a priest and the priest is telling him about Malachi and all of this stuff that's going on. But then also we get it into basically a haunted house. And I think that this scene is legitimately terrifying. I think it's a great scene. My one problem with the scene, and this is a common issue, I think, in a lot of horror is you're looking at this priest, right? And you're yeah. like, this guy has clearly absolutely fucking lost it. You run the fuck away from this guy immediately. Like any normal person's instincts would be screaming because this guy is creepy as fuck. What was going through my head was this guy could and should be played by Brendan Gleeson. Just because I think he does a great deranged nut job. And just, it would have been fantastic to see him playing and also, Brendan Gleeson has that size where you think he would be physically capable of actually throwing Solomon Kane around. Right. But yeah, so basically, he's completely lost it. 
Cain is listening to him and because he has just spent so much time in the monastery with the abbot and stuff, he's like, oh, you priests are good. Priests like, wouldn't you do seem anything nice. bad. And in fairness, the priest does think he is feeding his practi- or parishioners, but, you know, they've turned into ghouls and are living underneath the church. But um, yeah, so we get this haunted house little section where it's very dark, but he's getting attacked by basically zombies and he has to try and fight his way out and crawl through a narrow space. And um, just like this, the scene with the mirrors at the beginning, it's genuinely terrifying. Yeah, it's no. Genuinely well done. Genuinely, genuinely very creepy. And I, I think like, you know, this as like action film, sure, but also as like horror film, like supernatural horror films set in the past, I think it a lot of it does work very well. So he comes across, as it turns out, his thief buddies from before who have now been orked. Yeah, they've been taken over. They kind of recognize him. He recognizes them. Because they say something like, oh, it's you, that idiot who doesn't kill people. And he's like, yeah, I think I kind of changed my mind about that one, actually. About that. (laughs) Here's two dead guys. And then he tortures the other one for information. And that one tells him that Meredith is dead. So then he goes and gets drunk. What he does first is he goes, no! True. True. And uh, while he is getting drunk in a tavern, uh, some men come across him and recognize him from back when he was their captain. I guess not on the voyage that we saw at the beginning of the film, because we know none of those people lived. But, you know, maybe some of the people who were, like, with him and Francis Drake or something. You're Solomon Kane, aren't you? Oh, I'm happy. No, not Solomon Kane anymore. So they're sort of trying to talk him into leading them. He's been kind of like, no, it's hopeless. And, however, he's, like, enough, you know, seems like he's part of the resistance crowd that he does get dragged out and crucified literally crucified and it's a good crucifixion scene because they're hammering in those nails and it's raining and it's raining and there's hammering going on and it's going in and he's all like oh i'm being crucified i don't deserve to be alive and while he's being crucified a wagon of prisoners goes by and meredith inexplicably recognizes him nailed to a cross from like 30 feet away yeah and starts screaming and uh, you know and screaming his name and so they scream each other's names at each other and so now he knows right that meredith is alive so he He pulls himself off the cross this dude is literally better than jesus yeah listen so everybody knows when you're listening that sarah likes to jibe me about my god and how her people might have killed him but uh yeah Solomon Cain's better than Jesus. This yeah, is, this he's is just pulling himself off the fact. fucking cross. He uncrucifies himself. Like, he's not going, I'm being crucified. What am I going to do? <laughs> not <Just> today. <laughs> and he just pulls his arms out. Like, and it's again, like no it's, it's visceral. He pulls his arms basically off the cross. So he doesn't pull the nails out. He pulls the nails through yes. his own hands and wrists. Like, to bring himself off the cross. And then I falls find to the ground this, and is still able to fight because, you know, he's Solomon King. I find this inherently, I will say, unbelievable as something anybody could do. I will note. Like, I just, I'm, I feel like the way your body is distended, you couldn't possibly have the leverage to do this. Not just anybody. Solomon King. 
it's it, it's ridiculous, but you know, good for him. Good good uncrucifying yourself <laughs> as Jude, who is better than Jesus. It's a phrase I'm gonna use from now on. Uncrucify yourself. The next time somebody's acting like a real martyr for it, oh my god, I have to go into work today. Jesus, just uncrucify yourself, will you? <laughs> It's an extra 20 minutes. I mean, to quote uh, Life of Ryan, crucifixions and doddle. <laughs> Apparently. So he gets healed and he's like, now I have to go confront the leaders. It's also there's like some like random, like, I don't know, a nice pagan lady. And he's like, get away from me with your pagan magic. And she's like, fuck you, my pagan magic healed you. And like, now you you know can barely even see your stigmata anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And then they're like, what do you see in their future? And she's like, yeah, no, it doesn't look good. <laughs> she she is, she's not being positive with this at all. She's like, nah, this is, this is a bad scene. And some bad stuff is going to happen at this scene. Yeah. So at this point, we learn more about the backstory. Uh, I will say this is also the point at which I realized that Malachi and the masked writer were two different people. <laughs> Yeah, I. Oh. In fairness, um, every time I watch this movie, I think I get that feeling. Yeah. Um, so the so Malachi is the leader, essentially, and we have not yet seen him. Yeah, and his right hand man is a guy with a mask who is doing all of the outside of the castle stuff. So I, every time I heard Malachi mentioned, I assumed it was the Black Rider. Same. And every time I sit down to watch Solomon Kane, and I might watch it once every year or every two years or whatever it happens to be, every single time I'm going, oh, wait, oh, oh, Malachi's somebody else. All right, sorry. My mistake. But yeah, it's not quite made clear before this. Right. So at this point, though, we do get that Malachi is this healer who made a deal with the devil in exchange for power, you know, soul to soul to the devil in exchange for power. And that the masked writer is, in fact, a different person and is his agent. And we also learn that they have taken up residence at Axmouth Castle, which is, of course, Solomon Kane's ancestral home. Yes, so it's where he was. So he now knows that there are different ways of getting in to the castle. So he causes a distraction and he sneaks into the basement. Um, Sorry, I believe they're called dungeons. But he sneaks into the basement and uh, starts freeing the people who've been held captive looking for Meredith. But he doesn't find Meredith. Who does he find, Sarah? Well, um, well, but so so first, before that, I need to mention, first of all, once again, skull-centric decor props. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, the skulls are cool as hell. Yeah. And that the witch lady child is back with, like, a skull maraca. <laughs> So she's great. And so, you know, they're fighting. And then eventually, you know, he kind of goes through the dungeons and is freeing these prisoners, right? Doesn't find Meredith, but finds Daddy! Max von Sydow is back for his other two minutes in this film. He's back and still alive. Doesn't look much changed, despite the fact that Solomon Kane has been away for 20 years, we could say at this point. <laughs> yeah, like, he still just looks he, like Max von Sydow. Yeah, in, in the flashback, is he what? 15, 16? Yeah. And now he's definitely mid-30s, early 40s. Like, he wouldn't look much younger than I feel at the minute, right? And then Max Van Sydow has not aged a day, despite the fact he's also now trapped up in a building. I mean, it's hard to age Max Van Sydow. But um, yeah, he's back for his two minutes just to explain, <gasps> dun, 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 the mass writer's actually your older brother, Marcus. So, yeah. So, okay. 
So what he says, right, is that he brought in this sorcerer, so which is, I guess, Malachi, right? And, uh, you know, made, you know, made some arrangements and the sorcerer was able to save Marcus, but then says, and he was changed and like, now he was a dick. And I'm like, no, he was always a dick. What's the fucking change? I'm not seeing the change. The only change is that he's got a fucking mask now. I would love if that was the actual line. Oh no, Solomon, your brother Marcus has changed. He's now a dick. <laughs> the actual line is that now he obeys only the will of the sorcerer or whatever. Um, also, just want to point out, if you've got two sons and you name one of them Solomon and the other one Marcus, you're doing a disservice to one of those children. Depending on the given situation, either Solomon is the acceptable name or Marcus is the acceptable name. But in no world are both of those names acceptable at the same time. This is Marcus and his brother, Malachith. Like, like, come on. Yeah, and so, again, I just... I fail to see what the change is, other than that he can, like, make people orcs with his magic hand. Dad then, having, you know, dropped this bombshell, then begs Solomon to kill him, which he does. Rest in peace, Max von Sydow, who genuinely, I have never seen more of a waste of talent than Max von Sydow in his six minutes of this film. Yeah, he's not in a lot of it, um... And he is a fantastic actor who should be in more of it. But again, it's probably one of those things where they had him for one day. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, probably a half day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it could be, I'd say one day just because you require you changing sets and all that sort of stuff. Actually, wait, no, we wouldn't even require changing sets because all of his scenes are at the castle. I guess one's in a dungeon and one's in like a throne room. Yeah, but I mean... I'm assuming they were actually filmed in that castle. That's a, an actual castle. Right? Yeah, so, so I'm assuming it was just set up the throne room, film with Max yeah. on Sado, then go down into the dungeon, film with Max on Sado. Yeah. So with this done, he goes now to confront Malachi. Um, and of course, then ends up fighting Marcus. Again, why does this man think that he will be able to resolve this situation by having a nice heart-to-heart with Marcus. When he couldn't have a nice heart-to-heart with Marcus before he was controlled by the devil or whatever to convince him to not be a rapist. (laughs) Regular Marcus could not be fixed by a nice conversation. So again, even if you've never seen this, this movie, right? Sarah is not over-exaggerating how stupid this movie is. He comes in, the, the masked writer is a masked writer. He's standing there, he's silent, and Solomon Kane is constantly trying to appeal to his good side. Marcus, do not, this is not really you. And he's like, no, it was me, bef- it was him before. He doesn't have a good side. He doesn't have a good side. He's always been a scumbag. And now he's a scumbag who's been turned by magic to be even more of a scumbag. Um, so basically he has to fight him. Uh... For a lot of the fight, Malik or um, the Black Rider Marcus is getting the better of him, but I mean nobody gets the better of Solomon. So eventually he ends up killing him and cutting his head off. Woo! Hashtag let him die. He also <laughs> sets him on does. fire. Yeah, he so in order to weaken him, he sets him on fire. Yeah. yeah. It's great. It's like rest in peace, brother. And I'm like, eh, it's fine if he doesn't. 
it's also a pretty pretty good jewel it's not often like you get to see like it's it's well done yeah like. yeah no it's a good it's a good a good fight except for his like dub like i know this isn't you and it's like yeah, i'm pretty sure it is um <laughs> so meredith meanwhile has been hanging out there in a cage and Malachi uses Meredith's blood to free this, like, extremely large flaming demon situation. I, it, it looks very similar to the Devil's Reaper. Yes. From earlier in the day. So, and there, there are similar mirrors set up in the room? Yes. So clearly this is the same kind of demonic situation. Yeah. Um, I will also add that in general... I think a lot of the effects in this film, like, okay, in the, the monster is like the moment where it's just clearly like, all right, this is like not amazing CGI. It very much feels like it's like a kind of video game boss. Yeah. Um, and it sort yeah, of it's, looks it's like the worst, a video It's the worst game. CGI you think. The, the, the rest of the movie isn't particularly CGI heavy. No. It's, it's a lot of practical effects. It's again, one of the things I really like about it. Um, but yeah, this is typical mid to late 2000s we have to put a bit of cgi in there it's in the budget we might as well and yes like the rest of the movie i think yeah like the rest of the movie i think looks very good and this guy does not yeah it really makes a a difference like you can tell where practical effects are used and when they're not in much the same way in peter jackson's lord of the rings you can tell that as well like Mm -hmm. stuff gets very rubbery and bouncy when you're trying to jump across a giant elephant type creature and your name is legolas but right and there's i would say i think lord of the rings actually holds up better than a lot of things but there are definitely occasional moments when you're like okay that is it's the same with um it's the same with jurassic park like jurassic park is so good because they try to ground everything in reality and once they go in at like the reality of what a dinosaur might have looked like but once you go into the fantastical then everything becomes rubbery and has Mm -hmm. no weight to it and that's what happens here with this badly rendered dragon creature yeah, so he fights for a bit and then basically offers his life and soul to save Meredith, which gets it done, and Malachi and the demon get sucked up into this weird mirror, and now everything's fixed and his soul is redeemed. Yay! Yeah, it's it's a weird ending because... Like, did it have to be Solomon Kane who did that? Like, could somebody else have just showed up and said, if you release this girl, I'll give up my soul? Uh, I mean, I assume it's... I don't know. I mean, maybe it just had to be a kind of pure sacrifice, right? Where, like, you were genuine... Maybe it just had to, like, be that you were genuinely willing to self-sacrifice, and that's what does it. And then for Solomon Kane, because he was damned. Oh, because by the way, specifically, like at the beginning, he's like, what? I never made a deal with the devil. I don't remember doing that. And the response is, a deal was made. And the answer is, by the way, that specifically, uh, Max von Sydow fucking sold his other son's soul to the devil to save his dick older son. Yeah, pretty much like. And he's like, wait, I don't, where, where did this come from? Yeah, it turns out that I did that because I needed to keep Marcus alive because he was my favorite. Sorry. Max Van Sato. Bad dad. Like, uh, Yeah. Bad dad, magic dad. Also, I feel like that shouldn't count. Like, I feel like you shouldn't have the legal right to sell well, Sarah, your kids sold to the devil. Uh Solomon was a minor at that point, and as you know, underneath uh, Christian rules, minors have no rights until they come of age. 
That's true. I mean, they have rights when they're in the womb, and then they have no rights again. And uh, it's fine if we shoot them in schools, is I'm pretty sure how uh, how that works. <laughs> I'm calling that out, sir. Don't you, don't you, Derek, don't cut it out. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's pretty much it. Uh, Meredith is saved. Solomon comes walking out, puts on his hat, and basically does the end of... Have you ever seen Grapes of Wrath? I have not. I've read Grapes of Wrath. I have not seen the yeah. movie. So the scene at the end, which in the movie and also in the book, is wherever injustice is, I'll be there. Wherever uh, a strong person is taking advantage of a weak person, Tom Jode will be there. So basically he gives the Tom Jode speech. He's like, yeah. I'm going to right wrongs. Um, and yeah, so he goes off to basically become the Solomon Cain in the books, who's just going around writing putting right what once went wrong basically yeah. quantum leap we mentioned yeah. earlier and it's something like once it was a time of witchcraft and sorcery with nobody to stand against it but not anymore because i guess it's still a time of witchcraft and sorcery but now there's me but now there's Solomon Thumbs Cain. and and we do get informed that meredith gets to be is uh sent back to her mother so uh her her mother got out okay from the field of corpses i guess well, her, her mom, her mom was just kind of chilling in those cults. Like she was probably. There's another thing. Do you think like Solomon Cain went off? Like went off. The mom had to bury them. Like so yeah. did she dig the graves for Alone. Samuel and uh, uh, the dad, like her husband. I mean, okay. I, I'm not actually quite faulting Solomon Cain for this because I know that in terms of being able to like rescue Meredith, time is of the essence, etc. But I'm just like thinking of this poor woman alone on this field of corpses, having to like what alone bury her entire family? Jesus. So Sarah, that's the end of Solomon Cain, right? He has given up his soul and he's going to go around and right the wrongs, as we said, like grapes and rat. But now what we need to do is find out what they got right or wrong. And I'm doing this thing where I start introducing the segments on your podcast again and I can't stop myself. <laughs> but I get to sing again where we do a session called There it falls, <laughs> What did they get right? What did they get wrong, Sarah? And I get to sit down and shut up and listen. Well, so I'll start with some things that are at least in the realm of being right. So uh, first of all, okay, I will say, so at the beginning, we get very little um, information in film about exactly who these people are. We know that they're in North Africa and that they are, I would say, kind of vaguely coded as being Muslim. The Wikipedia summary specifically identifies them as Ottomans. Yeah. Uh, this is locationally plausible. The Ottoman Empire would have, in 1600, included parts of North Africa, so Egypt, Tunisia, the northern coast of what today is Libya and Algeria. All of that would have been part of the Ottoman Empire. So, fine. Uh, yeah. I also spent some time looking up the helmets. So the helmets that we see at the beginning of the film, right, they uh, kind of have these uh, like pointed parts. Um, and these bear some resemblance to Ottoman helmets, but I would say the kind that they most resemble are a kind which were practically used in military settings in the 14th to 16th centuries. But by the beginning of the 17th century, especially as firearms became more commonly used in military contexts, uh, yeah. they seem to have fallen out of favor as something actually that you would practically wear in combat and were mostly for ceremonial use. Mm. So, bit of each. So, they made an attempt. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, something else where I think they made an attempt is that there are references to some of the prior adventures of Solomon Cain back when he was a dick. And it says he fought against the Spanish, and it says that he um, like sailed alongside Francis Drake. Uh, and both of these track in terms of timing. So it's uh, the year that it's, you know, a year after North Africa, 1600, right? So it's like 1601. Based mm -hmm. on his age, it certainly seems plausible that he could have fought in the uh, the English battle against the Spanish Armada in 1588. Mm -hmm. 12 mm -hmm. years ago, right? He probably would have been yeah. in his, you know, 20s. That would make sense because he would have been in his mid-20s. And yeah. it, there's a good chance it, since he's a very good fighter and... Thing. He he probably was yeah. relatively high up in the company. Right. And also that, you know, this is the right timing for Francis Drake, who would have been involved in that battle, as well as additional expeditions all the way uh, through about 1595, or, um, about a year before he died of dysentery. So I think this is useful. And also, I think... Um, adds to the context for Solomon Cain and his past in a useful way in that the boundaries between military ventures on behalf of the government and trade and piracy are all very thin. They're very blurred. Yes. So I think that is a kind of good context for Solomon Cain that he is this person, right, who even if he has some kind of governmental authorization for his killing, like the assumption is fundamentally that like the the boundary between like what is valid and what is not valid um and like what is crime and what is like war is as i said like like yeah right he's me. he's living in the blurred lines i think yeah. by the time we come to the start of this movie i don't even think we're supposed to be thinking he's working for the crown in any way or anything i think right i, I think he is freebooting at that stage but that sort of tracks, right? That he would have yeah. been somebody who maybe he got his start joining the army, you know, in his 20s, fought against the Spanish Armada. And then kind of gradually as he, you know, built up his reputation and his skills sort of moved into just like straight piracy. Yeah, like as in, effectively, I have a ship, I have a crew. We're no longer working for you. And yeah. We're off on our own. Yeah. yeah. And I think like contextually that makes sense. And I think the referen these references uh, kind of add to the context for that in useful ways. And something else where I'll say they at least were close. Uh, but so that we see the burning of bodies by these people who have the kind of stereotypical plague doctor costume that is very familiar to us in our own uh, plague time that we see a lot of references to. So the, uh, the yep. kind of bird beak mask. Uh, so on the one hand, first of all, there are continued plague epidemics uh, all over Europe and other places and England included over the course of the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, I don't think any particularly major ones precisely in 1601, but, you know, fine, close enough. Um, however, my understanding is that the plague doctor masks, that that specific kind of plague doctor costume is something that is not, in fact, at any point attested in England. We It is about the right time for it, I believe, because it was first referenced in 1619, so we're at least close chronologically as opposed to the things that like pop it into the 14th century where like there's no reason to it, think it that it was exist. it did yeah. not exist. Yeah. Um, but all of the references that we have to it at this time are continental Europe. So uh, France and Italy in particular, I believe. So 
it's something that's very recognizable and evocative, uh, but that um, space geographically is not quite uh, correct. I would yeah. say. So again, it's one of those things where they've obviously made an effort to go for it. Oh, this is the right time period for the plague masks, but you know, they wouldn't have had them in England. Ah, don't worry about that. Nobody's going to know. Like what, what are the chances a medieval expert's going to look this up? Like <laughs> the other thing that I will actually give it some props for is uh, the use of uh, uh, witch persecution. Um, because as I was saying before, this period, the early 17th century, is really, I would say, very much probably the period where we have the kind of most um, extensive witch persecution in England in particular. So, for example, we're not that far ahead of one of the more famous and destructive English witch trials, the Pendle Witch Trial of 1612, in which there were 10 women and two men accused. Uh, there was one woman who was found not guilty, one woman who died before actually going to trial, and the other people were all hanged. Yeah. Um, and I do, I will say, appreciate as well the fact that they at least do raise the possibility that while most of the people uh, persecuted as witches were women, there were in fact some men. So that it was, I would say, gendered, but it was not exclusively women. I, so, I I honestly didn't realize I, I didn't know any men had been, been yeah. falsely killed. Like this is a very saddening thing to hear. Um, <laughs> what somebody think some, of the men? Some poor innocent men were <laughs> murdered for witchcraft. Um, so you know, as I, it is very much something I would say that's gendered, but that it is still nevertheless not exclusively targeting female, uh, targeting women, just primarily targeting women. Uh, and I think that is kind of worth noting as part of the kind of overall dynamic. So I appreciate that there is this kind of reference to men who are uh, either falsely or correctly in this film accused of witchcraft. Uh, with, for me, the greatest problem being that, like, it does kind of imply that, like, actually they're right and they should be <laughs> trying to kill these people. <laughs> Well, they shouldn't. I mean, if they're witches, they're witches, Sarah. Like, you see all the bad stuff the witches did. She turned um, into so birds, Sarah, okay? It sounds like the movie got a lot right, and I haven't heard much about what the movie got wrong. So, I mean, should we just move on to the next segment? Or? So, I would now like to talk about what I would consider a really big thing that it got wrong. And this is, you know, there have been some things right thus far that I've mentioned that are like little quibbles, but that at least like you can kind of feel like they tried. And then there's this where I'm just, this one thing where I'm just like, what were you doing? And that is that this film weirdly ignores a little thing in English history called the dissolution of the monasteries. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there were no monasteries. Yeah, so, like, remember that whole bit where England stopped being Catholic because Henry VIII told the Pope to fuck off because he wouldn't give him a divorce? Yeah. In the rest of us, in, in uh, us Catholic countries, we like to talk about that as, like, England's hidden shame, where <laughs> their entire religion is just based around the fact that Henry VIII wanted to bone somebody else and the Pope wouldn't let him. And Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's why they're basically so Catholic without the Pope now. Take that, know? Protestants. So. Well, they're not, like... Anglicanism no, is like barely even Protestant. Like they're just Catholics who don't have the Pope. Like, <laughs> so it's funny because it's true. <laughs> Sorry, guys. We so, don't believe the Virgin Mary might have was was even a virgin. That's what we're saying. <laughs> so you know, by the late 1530s, you know, he'd, he'd already murdered Anne Boleyn, the person that he you know you know did this basically in order to marry. But you know. 
At this point, he decides to dissolve England's monasteries, which is a pretty big deal. There are, at the time, about 900 religious houses in England, which together uh, are the homes for around 12,000 monks, nuns, and friars. That's a lot. When you think of it, that, yeah. like just even, even just a picture, 900. And England's a big country. Right. Yeah. Uh, and even if you're talking into Scotland, well, it's not that big of a country. Into but what I'm saying is, it's it's a big country back in the time. But if you picture it now, when you can travel from the north of England to the south of England, say fifteen hours worth of driving, uh, there's nine hundred, nine hundred monasteries. Yeah. In that sort of enclosed area. So if we would take it into counties and all this sort of stuff, it's basically two per county. Like yeah. it's a Crazy a lot of monasteries, yeah, and it's it's a lot of monasteries and it's a lot of monks. I I did not actually write down what the like what the precise like population of England is at the time, but like twelve thousand people is like a not insignificant proportion of the English population. No, it's not. It's a, yeah. it's a lot of people, and especially with the nuns. And as we know from at least two nun movies, that one that we've covered and one that you covered there recently. That's a high proportion of lesbians in, I know. What, in society what, in that particular What time. is to come of all the lesbians? Um, so late 1530s, Henry, with the support of his minister, Thomas Cromwell, decides... <laughs> Sorry, I just had to spit. Just can't hear his name without doing it. Well, that's not that's not the worst Cromwell. So he Henry decides, you know, and with Cromwell's help, what about those monasteries? No. <laughs> So uh, through some combination of like probably basically a cash grab, there have been some scholars who have argued that it represents some genuine religious belief or at least some amount of like him wanting to really exert his own authority as head of the Church of England. For whatever reason, Henry, with Cromwell's support, has all of the monasteries in England just completely despoiled and shut down. So it strips them of all their material wealth, seizes their revenues, which, by the way, come out to over £130 per year, which is about double the revenues of the English crown prior to that. Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of money. So... You know, it happens in some amount of stages, which I won't get into all the details. But basically what you can say is that by around 1540, England essentially no longer has functioning monasteries. So if you were ever wondering why, if you go to England, there are a whole lot of very nice ruined abbeys, but like not a lot of not ruined abbeys. It's a big reason why. Uh, the monks and nuns were given pensions. And essentially, that is, for the most part, the end of monastic life in England, uh, with the exception that Mary I, being Catholic, creates some new monastic foundations, which then subsequently are dissolved under Queen Elizabeth I. So in this year, so, you know, 1600, and then saying, you know, okay, so he would have been a child, in, or, you know, he would have been talking, they would have been talking about, you know, sending him to this monastery in, like, 1570. Yeah. Right, when he was a kid. It makes no sense. That's not something that would happen in England in this period. Because like, there monasteries aren't monasteries, and in particular, that like I'll also add that like there's like a like very Catholic-looking crucifix in the monastery that he's in. Like this is very clearly a Catholic monastery, which is not happening in England in 1601. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty cool crucifix actually. In fairness, yeah, it's a great crucifix. I love good crucifix. <laughs> 
But you know what? That Jesus never pulled himself right off the cross. Yeah, loser. <laughs> Uncrucify yourself there. <laughs> so, yeah, that is, I would say, like, the biggest historical, I mean, you know, and obviously, like, the whole, like, Magic general circumstances. Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole like obviously general circumstances of, of the movie of like basically everything is just like anarchy being ruled by like taken over by some guy named Malachi. Obviously, that's not real, but like you know, it's like fantasy horror. Like that, I don't care about. Right? Like that's a choice that they made for the film. That's another thing that that I I, I meant to ask about. How would how would a system or not a system an event like that have been handled? So say. Max von Sydow is his oldest son is now wearing a black mask and has chained him up in the dungeons and him and his best friend Malachi who is clearly evil uh, are now terrorizing the countryside and taking up how would neighboring lords have handled that I mean more like, if something like that happened the crown would have been and the handling crown. See, that's that's what I, before yeah. I got to the crown I wanted to deal with like the next person up from Axmouth. Like, how are, yeah. they, are they... Would they not be thinking to themselves, God, they're going to be coming for my people next. Like, yeah. we should... Yeah, no, like, yeah. I would say very... Like, I would... In this... In the, precisely this period, I would be very surprised, right, if the reaction from the neighboring lords hadn't been to very, very quickly both actually start, you know, marshalling their own forces and also, like, reaching out to the crown... Because, like, this is, I mean, this is a real problem, right? I mean, if we took this on its face, like, it's essentially, like, this, like, I don't know what part of England precisely this is supposed to be. I think it did say at some point, but now I've forgotten. Yeah. But, you know, it seems like there's a decent chunk of England that has essentially, like, descended into anarchy under the control of, like, a of like a warlock. Like, a warlock, yeah. Um, and they're, you know, and even without the magical part, right? If you had somebody who just, like, had taken over a chunk of the country and was just, like, going from town to town murdering people, like, yeah, um, I think, like, ro- like royal forces would have gotten involved at some point. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's mad that there's no mention of soldiers or organized, um, organized organized resistance to him like yeah yeah and like the late reign of queen elizabeth the first is like not a particularly like anarchic period in english history they would have noticed if like cornwall had just descended into anarchy yeah oh there's just what's happening down there in cornwall don't worry about it's just another one of those local warlocks you know just murdering some people it's fine don't worry about it as long as he pays taxes so yeah that that i will say is also a problem but that's at least a problem that you know like that is a liberty that i don't mind the film taking i find the we forgot about the dissolution of the monasteries like more irritating because i don't think it's strictly necessary but it does i would say kind of factor into the fact that this film also is in my opinion extremely uh theologically messy which is what I wanted to talk about in the next section, uh, where I talk about a specific historical person, event, or phenomenon. Which would, would is you call called... that section the uh... Historia et Veritas? I would indeed. I would indeed. You, did, did you mention you'd done a hundred episodes? No, I think I forgot because I recorded a bunch, like I banked a bunch uh, before I went to Europe for two months. 
And well, congratulations yeah. on a hundred episodes. Thank you. Sarah. Well Thank done. Thank you. So yeah, I kind of missed when I was until I like at some point like had posted like had like posted one. I was like, oh wow, I've done a hundred episodes. That's fun. Yeah, it was a good episode too. Which one? Which one was one hundred? I can't remember now. Agora. Oh yeah, no, that was a, yeah. that was a fun episode with uh, our my returning guest Morgan with Morales. Morgan, who yeah. has done a few episodes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I thought I thought it was going to be the Northman. Um. Because when you were talking to me about it, I was counting up in my head. That's what it was going to be. And then, yeah, that was 99. I was like, oh, so she must mention it on the next one. She must mention it on the next one. <laughs> but anyway, well done in 100 episodes. Sarah. Thank like, you. That's class. Like, Thank that's you. a long, it's not a long standing podcast. Yeah. Some yeah. people might even call you a legend of podcasts. People might call me a legend. And that means that now I can get into the bit where I just like talk about theology now. Perfect. <laughs> As one does. Lay it on me. So, who are the Puritans, first of all? The Puritans are an, are an English Protestant reformist movement. And basically, they think that the Church of England of the 16th and 17th century, which, as we were saying, is kind of Catholic minus the Pope, mm-hmm. is uh, insufficiently reformed and just, just a little bit too Catholic. So, and they, they don't like that. They think that there should be more changes made. And there will eventually be more active persecution of, of uh, Puritans at the point that we're looking at now in the early 17th century. Uh, Elizabeth I, I would say, tends to be more interested in targeting Catholics, um, who she sees as a bigger threat overall. I mean, you know, since the Pope does say basically like, hey, it's cool if you want to kill Queen Elizabeth. So, That's true. you know. He, he, he uh, was down with it and we all should have been. Yeah. <laughs> so you know kind of understandably uh she is more concerned about catholics than about dissenters from the other side but there are a few cases even in elizabeth's reign of product of a sorry of puritans particularly who are imprisoned or executed and the theological thing in particular however that i wanted to discuss in the context of this film of this film is that Puritans believe in the Calvinist doctrine, so developed by John Calvin, one of the early Reformation leaders, of predestination. So predestination holds basically that, first of all, humans are inherently just sinful and trash, but that God had previously selected a number of elect individuals, and those individuals get to be saved and go to heaven. So essentially, this means, first of all, that the expectation is kind of that, yeah, most people are going to hell. Which is true. And secondly, yeah, sorry, go on. I was just saying it's true. It's true. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, I certainly hope that um, six of the three, nine Supreme Court justices are going directly (laughs) to hell. Um, And it also means, don't eat or cut that out, (laughs) and also means that if you have already been predestined, right, for salvation or damnation, which happens well before you're even born, that means that no matter what you do, right, like no good works that you perform over the course of your life ever get to change that. You could be Gandhi, you could, you know, no, but you could be anybody, no matter how awesome, if you have already been predestined for damnation, too bad. And Calvinists... Um... So, for example, in particular, Scottish Calvinists, they would have become what we know as Presbyterians now. 
I mean, Ron there are various sects. Yeah. Yeah, more. And there's various other sects that kind of, yeah, have this kind of background. And so, and so, and Puritans uh, had kind of at least have this kind of doctrine of predestination. So the thing with the Puritans, and I think in general, people who believe in this theology is that it's not a deal breaker, right? They just essentially try to live as though or on the assumption that they are, in fact, members of this elect who's already been saved. So you could take this theology and say, God's already decided everything. Why should I be a good person at their very least? Like, why should I, you know, avoid worldly pleasures, etc.? And Puritans don't did not think that way, right? They said, like, we we should live as though we're members of the elect and vigorously refuse to have any fun. As the Puritans are in fact famous for. Don't have any fun. Like it's just a weird a weird way to look at it because if you are already damned it doesn't matter if you have fun or not like you're damned you're not going to make it any better for yourself right but that is not the attitude right the attitude is like no in fact we should not have fun it's weird um it also of course exists rather uncomfortably with like a belief in human free will since at the very least even if you have free will your free will is sort of irrelevant yeah, because you have free will to do whatever you want, but it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, you're either going to heaven or hell no matter what. And that's the other thing. If you're, yeah. if you're predestined, if you are destined to go to heaven and you're a scumbag, do you still get into heaven? Apparently, yeah. And I think the idea, right, is that if you have been predestined, then that makes you more likely to be a good person. Yeah. But... Because, like, God already, which also then, you know, is uncomfortable in terms of its relationship with free will, right? That that implies that, well, if you're a good person, maybe it's because you're a good person because God has already decided your destiny for salvation. Yeah, you are a good person because you've got the good inside you. This other person is a bad person because right. they've got the bad inside them. And that I find really interesting, theologically speaking, in relation to this film, because the film does not overtly take a stance on predestination per se. But I find it interesting. So Solomon is damned, not by his own actions, right? He does not make a deal with the devil. But it's only after his soul has been damned that he turns into a dick. (laughs) Right? Because as a, like, 14-year-old or whatever, he's a perfectly nice, normal kid. He, in fact, even, like, does, you know, he, in fact, like, does an active good work, right? He rescues this poor woman that his brother is trying to rape. And it's only subsequently when his been when his soul has been sold to the devil that he becomes this person who like I just love killing. And boy howdy does he love killing. And boy howdy does he love killing. And so I feel like this film is weirdly implicitly taking the stance that the fact that his soul was sold to the devil by somebody else made him into a bad person. Yeah. That's true. And so that his sinfulness is the result, not the cause, of his predestined damnation. Yeah, so because his dad made that choice, choosing yeah. one son over the other, basically, uh, that was what was determining where Solomon went. And then Solomon made the choice at the end, or what would have been the end of his life, when the Devil's Reaper came to take him, to uh, to go all you know proper Christian on it. And that's what saved them at the time. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting, but like you're right, it it does. It, it's got like wild implications for what you can do with other people's souls. Right. 
And also I find it interesting that Solomon's actions also initially do not seem to change the fact of his damnation. He renounces violence. He donates all of his wealth to the church. I mean, in a way that does not seem feasible for the year 1600 in England, but whatever. But this seems to only be putting off his inevitable damnation, right? That he's like using this like monastery as camouflage, but he hasn't actually change the fact that basically if he leaves the monastery or like eventually just when he dies no his soul will be yeah, damned so right and no matter in the monastery what he's he does, basically hiding behind a big cloak and pretending yeah. that he's not there and the, the devil's minions can't get into him because he's in a, a place of worship or a place of god or whatever but yeah if he dies right. his soul is still going down to the to the, the hot spot and the only thing that seems to actually change matters is not his own actions exactly, but essentially Crothorn's intercession on his behalf. That Crothorn is the one who just decides, hey, if you rescue my daughter, who's this pure soul, then you will be redeemed and saved. Yeah. So it's not your actions. And so actions. it's then still somebody else. It's because I have deemed it or I have willed it that you're going to be saved. Right. So essentially, we still have a system in which then ultimately he does still have to do something. But it's actually, it's it's not, he doesn't even have to, it's not even that like, if you like, make an effort, he has to actually accomplish the task. <laughs> so it's not even like if you commit to being a better person, you can be redeemed. It's like, if you actually like, successfully carry out this task, then then you're going to be redeemed. But in this case as well, it's somebody else who is essentially making the decision about his ultimate redemption. Yeah. So I find this film very theologically weird. And I will also say that the other thing that I find theologically weird is that, so we have all of that, right? Which is all, which seems like it is at least kind of connecting to this doctrine of predestination and all feels very theologically Puritan, which then in the film coexists with the idea that the place that he can kind of best go to essentially like camouflage himself from the devil is what is coded as a Catholic monastery. Yeah, and then... It, <laughs> In a period where, like, Catholics and Puritans do not think that they are, like, both equally valid paths away from the devil. And then what's interesting about it as well is how, in that case, it becomes even more strange that the abbot casts him out because of his bad dream. Because <laughs> it, it's the abbot literally making the choice to just... The, the, the abbot gains nothing from it. It's... It's right. the abbot making the choice of, hey, you're destined to go to hell. It doesn't matter what's happening. You have to get out of here. Whereas as a Catholic, he should have really believed that Solomon Cain's good works could have redeemed him. Yes. Yes. So yeah, actually, yeah, the priest's actions in his own context do not make any sense because then he just says like, well, it's destiny. Yeah, but you and shouldn't he believe like, in destiny. Yeah, I mean, given, I mean, no, except for the fact that it doesn't make sense for him to be a Catholic abbot at a monastery in England in 1600, as a Catholic abbot, it would have made more sense for him to be like, oh, I believe that if you leave and do, like, better good works, then that's going to be your path to redemption as opposed to just camouflage. But he doesn't say that. he just goes, get out. Get out of here. (laughs) And then he says something like, you know, some people's path might even lie through violence. That's true. 
but he still basically says, but he still does actually use the word destiny. Mm. Which, as said, yeah, it, it it's it's weird, but I suppose. It's not a movie who who is trying to play up the big themes like that, but yeah, it doesn't. It's it remains inconsistent within its own its own framework, I suppose. Yeah, so i i find I find this movie to be yeah very very theologically messy uh, in terms of what it is ultimately kind of trying to say. And I think essentially the answer is that basically they wanted to have fun demons, but also <laughs> the possibility of redemption. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, as I think probably the real answer. But I mean, and I also will say, like, I think the whole idea of like him, his soul being sold on his behalf, I think even like that, like the fact that he's like a minor still does not, I think, mean that his father can sell his soul to the devil on his behalf. Oh, no, I, like, I was making a joke about the fact that he was a minor. But um, yeah. Uh, right, right. But, but realistically, just to like, like clarify, how can his dad, as you said, how can his dad just go, I'm giving you the soul of this child to save the soul of this other child. Like, that's not how it works. Like, if my son was sick um, at the minute, uh, I can't just go, oh, I'm giving the soul of my uh, brother's kid. Like, that's it. I've done right. it. I made the deal. That's how it works. Yeah, you can't just give other people soul. Max von Sydow could have sold his own soul. Yeah, and he should have. If Yeah, he should have. But he didn't. Uh, fuck that guy. Yeah, um, but yeah, but I, I theologically, one does not have authorization to sell other people's souls no. in any tradition. In fact, yeah, he should have at least had a chance to make it like play a round of the fiddle against the devil or something like, instead of just here, take it, it's yours now. Right. Right, because yeah, and this and this thing was like I didn't make a deal. It's like a deal was made. It's also like, it it's also happen. strange that uh, he wouldn't have been told this at any stage. Like it, we're, we're we're to believe that there's a real a real world devil in this situation, and obviously a real world god. So right, why and the devil takes like thirty, 30 years, years to be like, yeah. hi, how are you doing? I'm here to collect that soul of yours. Wait, but what? Uh, sorry, what am I? So, like, why wouldn't he have popped up after five years and been like? you're doing good stuff with that soul like oh, i like what you're doing there yeah. kill some more boy you're you're really really reaping in the coffers of my investment in you like the timing doesn't make sense i feel like yeah either he would have shown up sooner or he would have like waited until he was actually about to die also on a, just on another point like if the if the devil is collecting souls surely the devil would want to collect a pure soul like, would that not be more of a boon or a benefit to him? Because as soon as it's sold to him, if we're detected Solomon Cain then starts going off doing evil works because his soul has been sold to the devil. But the devil hasn't collected it yet. So would it not have been better for the devil to have Solomon Cain just go off and become like a monk somewhere going around helping people to heal them or whatever and is basically like this pure white soul. And then when he dies, completely out of nowhere, devil just pops up and goes, <laughs> it's mine. Well, but that's the problem with the fact that Solomon Cain didn't sell his own soul because the devil does seek to corrupt souls. But the reason he seeks to corrupt souls is because like that is how, in fact, the devil takes souls. The devil can't just like take a pure soul because somebody else, because like he fucking like wanted in a bed or yeah. whatever. Like, but see, that's what I'm saying. That is, person has to make an active choice. So this because well, he didn't make an active choice, surely the devil would then want 
him to not go around killing people so he gets a pure soul because then this, the devil has a pure soul 40 years in the future when Solomon Cain dies in his bed surrounded by his grandchildren and you know what, yeah. what has he done oh I built a monastery myself and you're like the devil just shows up and goes <laughs> you live this wonderful life of joy and happiness to everybody in the local village but I had your soul the entire time you're down with me boy like well, and then that's the thing also, right, is that he has this whole thing where he's like, well, now I'm renouncing violence. Like, that doesn't actually seem to have accomplished anything. No, it, it gave him that instantaneous block with his magic sword in a cool scene where the Reaper was trying to stab him and he, he blocks the sword and then jumps out the window. But it didn't really do anything. That, like, it's, it's just... And he kind of knows it doesn't... I mean, because he's still, even with that, right, he has to, like, hang out in the monastery to actually be and safe. He, has he can't just be around in the world. The as well. Yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, he can't just be, like, out running around in the world, like, renouncing violence and being, like, a normal, decent person. So it kind of seems like even though he's like, well, if I go back to killing, then I'm damned for hell. Like, it kind of seems like he's damned for hell even if he doesn't Yeah, kill people. maybe he even realizes it and just hasn't put voice to it. But... It, Anyway, look. Puritans were idiots. Uh, that's that's where your story had Veritas is at this point. But just also, as I said, that like I think the I think the theology specifically of this film has a lot of inconsistencies. Like I don't even think it totally like works within the theological system of predestination, which like is a system that like there is certainly a lot of reason to maybe find unattractive, but it is at least, I feel like, internally consistent. Yeah, I agree, 100%. Whereas, like, this film is not. Yeah, no, that's the thing is, the film doesn't adhere to its own rules enough for them to be concrete no. rules. No. Would you say that's also true in the books, or do you think it's because the film is, like... The books, again, are very vignette so... Okay. Th- once, and it's been a long time since I read them. So once the, the devil, once Solomon Cain has effectively stopped, you know, he's repented. And mm-hmm. he goes, and he, same thing, he goes and he lives in the monastery. And then he goes around doing good. But it's just, it, it, it'll come up in Fabula Nostra. It's just basically, that's it. It's just, here's another thing yeah. that's good thing. Like, I, I don't remember too many scenes. And again, maybe, there are quite a few books. Maybe it's in the later novels where mm-hmm. he is having lots of theological discussions. But basically, he's just right. going around doing good in the next town and moves on to the next town and moves on to the next yeah. town. Like. So it's it's not quite the deep thinking. I mean, the, the novels themselves, even when they're collected together are 170 pages 160 pages they're 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 basically okay. short stories at that stage like so okay so this okay so this is really probably to some extent has a more even coherent like arc yeah. oh 100 um, not a coherent is, theological yeah world it's system. much it, it's not going in and breaking and creating its own system and again i think he was avoiding that as much as possible because the conan series mm-hmm. does have multiple different types of gods and gods warring with each other and all sorts of stuff. So this was more of a, here's a a more simple story with a more complex character in, in the main, in the main position, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So 
that I think can actually lead into the next section, the Fabula Nostra, where we talk about a film or other piece of media inspired by this one. And and I'm sorry, I know I said it, but can you can you remind me what exactly the segment <clears throat> it's is called? Fabula Nostra, uh, where we're going to talk about a, a version of the show or movie or maybe write a version of a book or we could create a play or a musical um, based on this whatever oh this should be a musical oh, absolutely uh, but I'm going to suggest a TV show because I've been watching quite a few of the Marvel TV shows I watched one the vision there recently and I watched Loki and I enjoyed both of them and I watched the recent Obi-Wan uh, series and I'm inspired by the recent Obi-Wan series um, I would like to see a Solomon Kane version of this Kind of similar to what I talked about a second ago in relation to the books, where Solomon Kane just blows into town, mm-hmm. sees something going on, and then fixes it. And then at the end, leaves town. So if you've ever seen um, the original and Incredible Hulk series from way back in the 70s and 80s, I, I, I just like the idea of Solomon Kane standing outside of a town in medieval England with his thumb up and his cool hat on. And his swords and says, just thumbing a lift from the, the next wagon leaving out of the town. And then he goes around fixing wrongs in a village, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and then you could have people just not, there's so many shows like this, like uh, Highway to Heaven, uh, which was about a fallen angel doing the same thing as far as I can remember. Right. Uh, Kung Fu which was like a karate guy in the old west doing the same thing, going into towns and doing karate. Uh, the A team is basically this. It's just like they're mercenaries. If you can find them and you can afford them, maybe you can hire the A team to fix your right, you know, put right what you're wrong. Even Quantum Leap, which I mentioned before as well, like he's going back through time fixing stuff, right? So mm. I would like to see a medieval version of this where Solomon Cain is a guy who has repented from his past sins but still has all mm-hmm. of those skills... And his first recourse is always trying to talk it out. But every single week, or nine weeks out of ten, the bad guys don't want to talk it out. The bad guys want to actually push him. And you won't like him when he's angry. And then Mm. that's basically it. He then canes out, beats the shit out of a bunch of dudes, probably kills some of them, and then moves on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now... I, I think James Purefoy could play that. I don't know if he's doing anything particular. Yeah. I know he was in a few TV shows. He was on The Following. was the last thing I saw him on, which was actually a very good show with Kevin Bacon, mm-hmm. um, where he was a cult leader and a charismatic cult leader. And Kevin Bacon was, you know, the, the Fed trying to bring him down and trying to prove that he was mm-hmm. doing all this sort of weird stuff. So, yeah, I, I could see him playing this character again. And I know he's talked about it before yeah. that he would like to to do Solomon Kane again. Yeah. So I would like to see him uh, as, as, as himself, uh, James Purfoy himself in it. You could even bring back his Merry Men and just have a different one of them in the village. Like you could even lead this yeah. into at the end, like he's the, the source of all of those historical figures. Like maybe he's the source for the Robin Hood myth, you know, that sort of stuff. And it's yeah. all there. So yeah, I'd like to see a Solomon Kane TV show where it's uh, every week it's episodic. There doesn't need to be a big through arc. It's just week one, baddie of the week, different town, moves on to another village at the end. And every single week at the end, he's just like sticking out his thumb and you get a sad little bit of music because he can't settle down. He has to move on to the next town. Yeah. So Solomon Cain, as an episodic guy with a dark past, goes around and fixes stuff. Yeah, cool. Sounds great. 
So my alternative version, inspired by my concerns about the portrayal of Islam, is, especially since we actually have theologically in this film, the idea in theory that, in fact, any theological tradition could, in fact, if, you know, they're true believers in God, be a pathway for him to, you know, at least temporarily hide from the devil. What if, instead of going home to England after he has this this experience in North Africa, what if, in fact, he stays there? And his actually kind of means for a long time of camouflaging Wait, hold himself. Hold on a second, Sarah. I think I know exactly where you're going. He becomes a missionary and brings the heathens to the one true Lord. Absolutely oh, not. Sorry. Instead, he just, you know, he believes whatever he personally believes, but the group of people that he's hanging out with is like he's hanging out with a group of, uh, Mus- of like Sufi Muslim mystics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he's just like hanging out there. And that is in fact, and it is in fact their prayers and mystical activities, which is what is temporarily in fact camouflaging him from the devil. Uh, so that we have this sense that in fact, like, you know, the these like Muslims are equally able to, you know, be kind of forces for good against evil in the world. Yeah. But but then so he, he does convert up. them by the end. Oh, no. Because no. we need a happy ending there. He's not, he's not going to convert them. So here's the happy ending. So, all right. In, as in this film, right? Um, so, okay, I don't want our female... Also, I've done no casting. Um, I don't want our female character to be damseled in the same way that um, Meredith very much is, right? Like, Meredith is, like, dragged off, and she doesn't get to really do it, and she certainly doesn't get to play any kind of active role in saving herself. She's just this kind of, like, vague force for purity who then has to be rescued. So instead... Uh, he's going to at some point end up, uh, he's kind of going to leave the group of Sufis, end up traveling for a bit with a Muslim family. And in this family, eventually the son is going to get kidnapped and uh, the, say like the parents and another son maybe get killed. And then he ends up traveling with the daughter who we will have a 100% platonic relationship with. Uh, to go and rescue the the brother and, uh, you know, will, like, you know, train her in combat as well. And so they'll, like, go around and fight. And the two of them will be going around and fighting and killing people, you know, killing the evil people to go and rescue the brother. Yeah. And my happy ending. So he eventually will also, as in this version, will learn that, in fact, the source of evil is uh, now located, in fact, at his, you know, in his hometown, in his hometown and that, in fact, his... You know, shitty brother is the person who is like the right hand now of the, you know, great force of evil. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when he goes to like fight that, what he's actually going to do is he is going to bring with him, in fact, essentially like an army, a like Muslim North African army is going to go and uh, and fight in England. Oh, interesting. So he's going to bring not not to be racially insensitive. He's going to bring an army of Moors with him. To England. I mean, I wouldn't use that term. No, but that's I, what I mean. Yeah. We now tend to not use that term, but yeah, and that they're going to, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not a war of conquest. It is essentially, you know, just fighting against the devil and then they'll go home, but that he is going to bring this army, which is going to be the army that will be the kind of main force then for some amount of time fighting for good in England. But I think, uh, I think they should conquest it. I mean, if they want it, if they want to, they then can. Then it can be... That'd be actually a great alternative history. That's it. As an alternative history, not only did they take over Spain, 
they also I mean this is long after they were saying, no longer way, way after that. Spain. but then they've also taken over England so yeah, like they basically have to take over England because of this like anarch this like dem- this like demonic anarchy fantastic yeah I like uh, it. That so that they brilliant. have to like basically yeah take over take over England and you know and and then England doesn't uh have the British Empire where they wreck the Middle East yeah that's true and just about everything else <laughs> hmm. um it just it reminds me of it reminds me of a meme I saw the other day and it said uh, what do you think of when you think of England and somebody's or like what what did England give the world and somebody's response was England are the the world's premium supplier of independence days Because so many countries like celebrate their independence from the British Empire. Like, that's actually... I never thought about that. That's genuinely true. That's pretty good. But anyway, um, yeah, I, Sarah, I would watch that. Um, I'm assuming that you will find a place for Oscar Isaac in that, um, because you always do. Of course. Of course. Oscar Isaac can be in it. He'd be great. Which then leads us into our final scores for this, Sarah, uh, in our Estimario section. Um, I was joking at the beginning when we started to record because uh, I was going through Sarah's notes and I saw her score and I was like oh it's so much lower than mine but um so I'll start as the guest uh I'm gonna give this a three out of five and okay it's this is a weird one for me I absolutely love this movie I I think it's brilliant and I could sit down and throw it on and I watched it yesterday and then I watched half of it again this morning and it's the same with the last episode I think was on was Outlander I did the exact same thing and it's mm-hmm. just a ton of fun. But I wouldn't say this is as good as Outlander was. And the reason it's not as good mm-hmm. as Outlander is that it's directed by somebody who is demonstrably a worse director. There's so many just wasted shots of vague, medieval, bad things happening. And yeah. there's enough plot there that you don't need that. However, I will say that the... Action scenes are well shot. The action scenes, the, the actors who are fulfilling those parts are doing great stuff. Like they're clearly practiced. And mm-hmm. um, the choreography is really good. Um, the two horror scenes or three horror scenes, if we take into account uh-huh. the, the, the ending as well. But the two horror scenes, the one with the mirrors at the beginning and then the one with the, um, the priest and the zombies underneath the church, they're both legitimately scary. Um, and very well done. It's just a shame that there's too many fast cuts. And, and I get that it was the style of yeah. the times. And shaky cam in sections of the movie where there are also sections without shaky cam. So you're, you're not even getting that consistency in, in the vision or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. But having said that, all of the problems I have with it, I still enjoyed this movie. I can still watch it again. If it pops yeah. up on Netflix someday when I'm flicking through other movies that I was watching or you know, recommend it. Solomon Kane, like, okay, Solomon Kane's yeah. going on this evening. So yeah, I, I genuinely enjoy it. I I can't give it more than three out of five because there's some bad acting. The plot isn't 100% consistent and it's directed yeah. poorly. But if you're just looking for, like, there's another podcast I listen to called We Hate Movies. The guys don't hate movies. They love movies, but uh, they just call it because they like talking about bad movies or whatever. But they have a thing called The Hangover Movie, which is a movie you can throw on the day after you've been out drinking. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really matter if you're paying attention or not. And you can still get the generals as to what's going on. I think Solomon Kane is a perfect hangover movie. 
Yeah. It's not going to tax your brain too much and it's not overly loud either, which is another great thing about Hangover Movie. Mm, so, true. Yeah. So three out of five and th- like that's on the high end of a three out of five. Like it's very close to a 3.5 yeah. out of five. So I'm giving it a 2.5. The I mean, part of the reason I'm giving it a 2.5 is because as we've discussed before, I gave 13th Warrior a three and I probably in retrospect that deserved somewhat higher. And so, you know, this I don't think I can give higher than that. So 2.5 and that reflects the fact that, as you were saying, it's not inherently good exactly. It's sort of ridiculous um, historically, I have a lot of issues and frustrations with the like weird, the dissolution of the monasteries it never happened. I also find problematic that the film both implies that witch persecutions were justified and implicitly associates Islam with like sorcery and evil. Those are things that I don't think that was the intention per se, but I think they were certainly at least thoughtless choices, perhaps reveal some amount of underlying Islamophobia on that side, at least. So it is something that I do find frustrating about this film. I also, you know, this film does pass the bare minimum if Decker test, the, you know, test that is even a lower bar than the Bechdel test, according to which there has to be one named woman who doesn't die. Highest bar. Lowest possible bar, uh, which yet some films do not pass, and this does, but Meredith is. You know, she is very much kind of damseled. She's this kind of vague force for purity. She really doesn't do anything. And, uh, you know, she kind of screams sometimes. <laughs> like, she she really is not a very active or interesting character, unfortunately. So I think given all of that, I don't think in good conscience I can give it over a 2.5. But that said, go ahead and watch this movie. It's Honestly, it's a lot of fun and it's only 90 minutes long. Yeah, <laughs> Have a good time. That, that is one of the things about it. Like, with the way movies are going nowadays, everything is over two hours. Like that last Spider-Man yes. I watched was three hours. Like, Jesus yeah. Christ, I don't have time to be watching this stuff. And there's something to be said yeah, about a popcorn flick. 90 minutes. There you go. I had to spend fucking three hours watching, like, Ridley Scott's shitty medieval rape movie. So, like, you know, in comparison. <laughs> oh, stop. That movie. And people <laughs> love it. Like, I... I, they're, 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 I'm sorry, they're wrong. Yeah. They're just no, wrong. I agree, I agree. I, I can't, I cannot. Um, so I thank you again for Pleasure. returning yeah. from your eternal damnation to <laughs> guest on this podcast. <laughs> Are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet? Uh, you won't find me on the internet, obviously, because I, I keep myself as hidden as possible. I think... Um, I don't even think you can search me on Facebook anymore. I think I found a way to to make that impossible to do. Um, yeah, I you definitely can't send me your friend request anymore. I know that I've managed to make Ooh. that not happen. I would pop up at Medieval every now and then. Uh, hopefully, I'll be back soon to talk about them. Um, oh, I'm gonna call my shots here. Uh, I'd like right. to come back to talk about the Dungeons and Dragons movie uh, when it comes out. So it's gonna be hitting the cinemas think it's september so whenever Excellent. it does so i'd like to go back and talk about that and if you want to do anything dungeons and dragons related in between but then you Excellent. can also find me on uh judging book covers where i'm a stand-in full-time guest 
host i'm not sure how to describe it and um, we haven't recorded in a while but i'm sure we'll be recording again sometimes so we have to talk about dangerous liaisons um Ooh. and uh yeah. that's a fun oh book. and yeah i'm sure you can find me if you if you look me up i'll be i'll be around yeah dangerous is a great book but yeah that's it busy i do podcasts and uh i hang around in the medieval pod facebook group and mod with excellent. an iron fist <laughs> excellent if you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes, and I actually have one to read for today Ooh. from Tignoti22, who writes, huge fan as his subject header, big lover of your podcast. Ever since I was a student of history, I was fascinated with the Middle Ages, and my current love of film and podcasts made me a huge fan immediately. So thank you to TigNody22 for your I'm review. I'm assuming that they're, they're, they're still in the first 20 episodes. Well, I'm, as I'm co-host, obviously. No, I'm talking about that. I don't, only talking I about that. I'd say they started around about episode 21 when it got good. <laughs> Please... Also, follow the podcast on Twitter at MediaEvilPod and join our Facebook group where Ollie mods with an iron fist. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram where I do not have a blank page. I have uh, images of travel and food and my very cute pets at Sarah F. Tucker. Delightful. And she will make you want to go to all of these places. She will make you want to eat all of those foods. And she will make you want to pet those cute, cute, cute kitty, cute doggy. Give them pets. I know, I miss them so much that I've been over here. I get to see them soon. I'm very excited. Oh, how long do you have left? Uh, like three days. Oh, savage. You'll be home. You'll be good. Yeah. And then we'll be back to me having to record at two o'clock in the morning. Good times. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's fine. All right, Sarah, always a pleasure. (laughs) Always a pleasure. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 